When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Marvelous Disney, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill, and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Tuesday, June 6, 2023. So that is five and a half days. And yes, I'm counting Thursday night preview screenings since Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse first opened in theaters. And anyone who was listening to the show over the past couple of weeks, remember how industry insiders kept being slippy slidey about what their box office projections were. Because the original Spider-Man uh, sold $35 million worth of tickets back in its opening weekend, December of 2018. Some folks opted to play it safe. They said, eh, it's going to do 70, maybe 80. On the other hand, there were industry insiders who were gung-ho, very aggressive initially. They said... 110 million on North American ticket sales, but then on the heels of how well Disney's Little Mermaid, the live action, did over its opening weekend. Those folks revised their numbers downward because they thought Mermaid, you know, might be serious competition, might be a stronghold. But Aaron, no one, and I mean no one, predicted that Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse would sell 120.5 million worth of tickets in North America. I mean, it's this is a feature-length cartoon. That's 2 million more than Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 did on its opening weekend, on, you know, just a, a few weeks back. And by the way, just to sort of circle back to that film, it's four weeks since it's come out in theaters, currently sitting at 324 million domestic, 458 overseas, worldwide box office total to date of 783. That is not what Guardians Volume 2 did back in spring of uh, 2017. North America, it did 389 versus the current 324. 473 overseas versus 458 right now. Worldwide total gross of 863. So right now there, there's roughly an $80 million shortfall at the box office. Don't get me wrong. This James Gunn movie will make up some of that overseas. But at this point, Guardians is running out of gas in the States. Well, thank God James Gunn's got a backup job. <laughs> That he does. That he does. You know that that, you know, and that's what in the house payment. But just this past weekend, it, it only sold seven million at the box office in North America, and that was because, duh, Spider-Man across the Spider Verse. Now, Aaron has seen this Into the Spider-Verse sequel. I have not because I've been getting ready for Dayton Disneyana, that fundraiser I do annually out in uh, Ohio, going to be held this coming weekend at the Hope Hotel and the Richard Holbrook Convention Center, June 9th through the 11th. So how, how do you discuss this film without doing spoilers? Oh, no, I'm, I'm going to rip it wide open and get, get into all the details. Okay. I mean, it's a movie review. That's part of it. So, I mean, when we get to the movie review portion, then you skip the entirety of it because it's all spoilerly filled. 
But uh, beyond that, right now, mm-hmm. if you if you just want to know the nuts and bolts of uh, what I think without a spoiler, mm-hmm. I didn't like it. You didn't like it. It pains me deeply to say that. Hmm. Really, really does. I will say the art is fantastic. Mm-hmm. The artists did a great job. The animation's fa- well. I don't want to say the animation's fantastic. There, I've got very specific problems that are mostly just me. Mm-hmm. And ninety-eight percent of the rest of the world will enjoy this movie thoroughly, no matter what my feelings may be about it. So, if you have plans to go see it. By all means, go see it. Most likely, you will enjoy it thoroughly because it seems that I am in the minority. Okay. But we'll, we'll talk about why I'm in the minority on, on this feeling later on the second half of the show, I guess. Okay. The other show I want to bring up here, particularly given your chosen field of work, is have you been hearing the stories about the audio? Yes. And uh, I don't know how technical you want to get into this because I could spend an entire half hour giving a lecture on the story. But mm-hmm. what uh, most people have complained about is that in the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. it's really hard to hear Gwen's opening monologue. And the simple fact for that is she's playing the drums as mm-hmm. hard as she can while speaking to you in a, in a tone of voice like this. Hi, Jim, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Now imagine I've got a full kit of, you know, Neil Peart's drums, and I'm just banging on all of them while I'm trying to talk to you like this. Mm-hmm. It's not realistic. Normally, if you're banging on drums, you got to shout real loud and mm-hmm. hey, right, to get over the noise of that. And uh, the, there's a audio trick that we do. It's called compression, where you just take the, the loud parts and make them quieter. Mm-hmm. And then you make the quieter parts louder. And so that way, like if you've ever been, you know, like trying to watch a, a movie late at night and they're, and they're whispering and you turn up the volume real loud and all of a sudden a gunfight breaks out and, and you're like, oh, shit, I got to turn this down before I wake up my spouse. Mm-hmm. Compression makes the gunshots quieter and it makes the whispers louder. So that way when they're whispering and then a gunfight breaks out, it's mm-hmm. not a dramatic change in volume like a gunshot's actually happening in your living room. Okay. So they're not really doing that with this. Mm-hmm. They're not making the drums quieter and they're not really making her louder. It's called a more dynamic mix when mm-hmm. you don't compress the bejesus out of it and just make everything loud mm-hmm. because that's the trend nowadays. Everything just has to be loud all the time. And uh, they didn't want to do that. And I respect them for that. Mm -hmm. But as a result, when you have someone just speaking, hello, how are you? While drums are playing, you're not going to hear them very well. Beyond that, the rest of the mix is fine. It's just like the first five minutes. Okay. Okay. Because what's fascinating for me is Phil Lord, one of the producers of the film, literally came out and sort of tried to pop the hood on the final mix thing. To the effect that he's quoted to the effect of seven is the standard we mix to. Seven and a half might play better in a full house. It's a very dynamic and comfortable mix, so you can play it loud and proud. And yep. what's fascinating to me is that this continued to be an issue to the point where Phil got on social media and actually showed this box of bumper stickers that he had had made up that were supposedly going to be sent out to the projectionist at every theater that was playing Spider-Man in North America. And 
That's 4,313 screens, Aaron. Now, mind you, lots of houses are playing it in multiple different formats, so that it's not that many theaters that it's being mailed to. But at the same time, Sony suddenly got to pony up quite a bit of dough to, to get these. Now, what does it say? I played Spider-Verse at full volume because I'm awesome bumper yeah. stickers out there. I'm just wondering who at Sony A paid to have the bumper stickers printed for Phil Lord and, and who is now addressing envelopes to mail out to each of the projections to the like I, I mean five thousand stickers ain't much in the promotional world. I mean you, you get that for free just by placing a large t shirt order for radio stations. So I mean Okay. So, and again, we will dive a little deeper on this film on the second half of today's show. But first, the news. And as always, news portion of Marvelous Disney is brought to you by Storybook Destination, trusted travel partner of the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, for a worry-free travel experience every time. Please book online at storybookdestinations.com. Okay, so we were just talking about the latest animated Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse, which reminds me, a uh, third installment of this series, Beyond the Spider-Verse, is supposed to arrive in theaters May 29th of next year. But I want to take a moment here to talk about the next live-action Spider-Man, which is supposed to be the continuation of the storyline that we saw in Spider-Man No Way Home. So, Aaron, there are people, especially executives at Sony, who really, really, really want this movie to happen. In fact, Spider-Man 4 producer Amy Pascal, when she was interviewed by Variety just last week while walking the red carpet at the Across the Spider-Man premiere uh, in Westwood, got asked about the status of this project. And she, she was like, are we making another movie? Of course we are. <clears throat> We're in the process. But what with the writer's strike, nobody's working during the strike. We're all being supporters. And whenever they get themselves together, we'll get started. Now, Tom Holland, in an interview with Yahoo Entertainment, he's been out doing publicity for his new Apple TV Plus show, The Crowded Room offered up some additional details about what's been going on development-wise with Spider-Man 4. And obviously, Holland wasn't able to offer up any story specifics. He did tell the reporter, I can't talk about that. But what I can say is we have been having meetings. Uh, we put those meetings on hold or, or on pause in solidarity with the writers. There's been multiple conversations, but at this point, it's... Very, very early stages. But the interesting thing, you know, and again, given the amount of money that's on the line here, I find what Holland said next fascinating. He says, look, if we can't find a way to compete with the third one, Spidey will just swing off into the sunset. <laughs> oh, like this kid is just begging to be slapped in the face with money is what he's saying right there. Like, yeah, if I don't like the quality of the script, I'm going to ask for a boatload more money to put the suit back on. I know he's got Pascal's number on the speed dial. Mm -hmm. He just calls her up. Amy, darling, we need to talk. Tommy's not happy with the script, Amy. What you going to do for Tommy? Make Tommy feel good. <laughs> Well, what's fascinating is the people associated with the Flash movie have actually been talking about how Spider-Man No Way Home set the bar so high for this sort of film where you have all sorts of cameos. So it was the whole notion of they were able evidently to go back to Warner's 
Did you see that one? Because you know, if we we want to compete, we're going to need more. You know, we need to bring back more people. I'm surprised they didn't just like call all the writers on opening day and be like, "Here's your ticket for Spider Man. Go watch. Go. We'll talk after the show. Just go watch. Go watch." Yeah. And and the interesting thing is, all of the flash reviews dropped today, and they sort of overlook. You know, I mean, everybody mentions. The young gentleman who who plays the Flash, his his various issues and controversies and that sort of thing. But they then go on to talk about how much they enjoyed the film. That it you know, right. it, it is very much in sort of a Spider Man No Way Home kind of thing, only done the DC way. So to circle back to Spider Man Four, we do not know when that will be released to theaters. On the other hand, Captain Marvel Two which is called The Marvels, will arrive in theaters on November 10th of this year. Now, mind you, not all that long ago, this Nia DaCosta movie was originally supposed to be released on July 28th of this year, got pushed back to November in February as part of a cost containment move from the Mouse House. Uh, But the toys for Captain Marvel were already being made at that point. And in fact, a number of them had already entered distribution channels, which is why they are now, because they were supposed to be here to support the July 2023 release date. So they're Mm -hmm. now showing up on store shelves. And the folks over at IGN recently shared photos of the Marvel Legends action figures that were produced to support this Nia DaCosta movie. And you can learn a couple of interesting things from looking at these photos. Uh, One, for example, Captain Monica Rambeau, over the course of this film, will eventually officially become Marvel's next female superhero, Photon. Because that's literally what it says on the outside of this Marvel Legends box, Marvel's Photon. On the other hand, the Ms. Marvel uh, Kamala Khan action figure comes with her own Flurkin kitten. So evidently Flurkin kittens are a thing now. I'm surprised they just don't have a box of Flurkins. It just, you know, like, you know how they have the, uh, I know they did them like with Simpsons and Mm -hmm. South Park where it was like a a little blind buy Mm -hmm. where you'd go buy a little box and you didn't know what character was going to be in it. Mm -hmm. Just 30 Flurkins. Don't know which one. Just pick a flurkin. (laughs) (laughs) I can see them milking that for all it's worth. I mean, really. (laughs) The thing that always tempts me about the Marvel Legends series is they always come with that build a figure option. There's all, you know, and the Thor Love and Thunder figures. Craig, the Taika Waititi, the. the Oh, uh, Korg. Korg. You could build your own Korg. I've got a Galactus from about a decade or so ago. Oh. Yeah. That'd be cool. Now, in this case, the build a figure that comes with the Marvels, uh, Marvel's Legends action figures, is a totally awesome Hulk. That's literally, again, what it says on the box, the totally (laughs) awesome Hulk. Does he come with a boom box and a skateboard and a backwards hat? It's totally awesome. I tell you that I, I, I have eye strain now because the IGN people did their job. They took pictures of these boxes for the, the Marvel's figures straight on. So you can, mm. can see Carol Danvers. You can see Monica Rambeau, or excuse me, uh, Photon. But if you look to the side, they have the Hulk figure, and he, he looks like the Hulk. I mean, don't get me wrong. You know, the Hulk is awesome, but the, totally awesome. So it's just green dude with purple pants? There we go. Standard, there standard we go. Hulk? No, all right. I will check this out when I get 
finally see this in the store, and we'll turn it to the side and find out why he he is totally awesome. I just think he needs to come with the van and talk like Spicoli for some reason with Totally Awesome Hulk. And- there we go. Good. Get the pizza <laughs> delivered to class. Okay, That's so right. again, we, we, we have Captain Monica Rambo is now going to be Marvel's Photon. And speaking of name changes, on last week's show, we shared the rumor that was making the rounds about Captain America 4, uh, which was that it was going to have a new subtitle, which had previously been New World Order. But as of today, uh, we learned through social media that that the title has indeed officially changed. The film will now be known as Captain America Brave New World. By the way, still on track for a May 3rd, 2024 release. Now, you got mail about this or someone reached out through social media? Yeah, Kevin Lizzo uh, reached out on Twitter to ask, do studios release snippets of news like this so Joe Average American thinks the writer's strike is just no big deal and that the writers start to lose sympathy? It doesn't look like the strike is going to impact Marvel with news like this coming out. And I get what he's saying, you Mm -hmm. know, because, you know, when they're fighting for money, Mm -hmm. you know, all's fair in love and war. So Mm -hmm. it's one of them things where, yeah, I can see them playing dirty pool to try and help their side and not give money to the writers. However, I do believe, and I had responded to Kevin by saying, I think at its most basic level that the publicity arm of Marvel has a schedule to keep until told otherwise. And if the movie's release date has not changed, that means that the promotional schedule also has not changed. So it will still show up in magazines and whatever news coverage they can get with an interview here and there. They're going to keep doing the publicity thing because they've got a, a movie to promote. So that's that. Okay. Let me share what I heard from friends at Disney about this particular name change. And this comes by way of what's happening overseas with The Little Mermaid. And as we mentioned, top of the show, doing quite well in North America, not so much overseas. And just to cut to the chase here, there's a lot of folks at Disney who believe this is because Halle Bailey is black, that stateside, yeah, we've had some people complain, but people still went to the theaters. Overseas, this seems to be a real issue. And this film that's coming up, uh, Captain America 4, is the one where we get the movie uh, will be the first time the black Captain America is out in theaters. And there's a certain number of folks at Disney who are just sort of like, okay, this is going out in May of 2024 in the middle of a presidential campaign that has already been, we haven't even made it to the primaries yet, and it's very divisive. Do we really want to have the name Captain America New World Order for the film with our black Captain America? It's like, maybe let's go another way, step away from the New World Order to, say, Brave New World, something that, same concept, but not quite as shrill. I think that's the the word I I heard used, you know, the effect of, that one's a little on the nose for for the first film with our Black Captain America. The very first time I heard the title New World Order, I was like, oh, geez, there's going to be a very small percentage of people who are going to start conspiracy theorizing mm-hmm. about 
Disney's part of it, man. It's it's a secret coded message. Just look at the title of this movie. They're part of the cabal to make a global currency and uh, just whatever, man. Just yeah, stop. I know. Just stop. It, again, it's a movie. Right, exactly. All right. Uh, speaking, though, of Captain America 4, that makes me think of uh, Thor 4. And conventional wisdom seems to be that Thor Love and Thunder didn't do as well as Thor Ragnarok because the fourth film in this series was too silly. Chris Hemsworth, in a recent interview with British GQ, basically admitted as, as such. He, he, he said, I think we just had too much fun while making this movie. It, it just became too silly. It was always hard being at the center of it and, and having any real perspective. I mean, I, I love the process. It's always a ride, but you just don't know uh, how people are going to respond. And Thor 1 and 2 were their own thing, where Thor 3 and 4 had a very different feel. By the mm. way, Aaron, in the same mm. interview, uh, Hemsworth touched on, you remember what Martin Scorsese said about the MCU, and, and likewise, Quentin... It's Dick, not cinema. There we go. And, and yes. Quentin Tarantino, I, I think, mostly talked about it as, well, it's really television. And Hemsworth said, well, that was super depressing when I heard that. that. There goes two of my heroes I won't work with. I guess they're not a fan of me. And So now, question. Will mm. Hemsworth make another Thor movie? Chris said they thoroughly enjoyed working uh, with Marvel Studios. And if they, they came to him with an offer to play this character yet again, he'd, of course, take a look at the script and see what it had to offer. And he said, offer creatively if, if there's something new. But as for right now, I really want to do some other stuff for a while. So, and Aaron, that goes for me too. I, I want to do other stuff as well. You know, like not keep telling stories about Robert Downey Jr. and how he got the Iron Man gig, but damn it, there's another story that just I found out about just this week. So when we get back from break, I'll share that, and you'll tell us about what you thought of Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. All right, Aaron, there's spoilers coming, right? Sound the horns. Here we go. Yeah, okay. we're going to start talking about Across the Spider-Verse. Okay. All right. So uh, we'll start off with, with the good news, mm -hmm. right? The uh, the artists, the voice actors did amazing work. Mm -hmm. Maybe after I see the third movie, I will lighten up on this one a bit, but it does have very much an Empire Strikes Back kind of ending. It's, mm -hmm. you know, the story isn't resolved in any real sort of way. Gwen's arc starts and ends the movie, so there is that little morsel of resolution mm -hmm. but everything else is completely unresolved and so when you get done with the the runtime you're like well okay i can't wait to see what happens and uh and then you move on now first thing the that i have issue with is uh the pace of the movie mm -hmm. because we start off in gwen's world and she shows you her side of the story mm -hmm. and in the first spider-verse she kind of summed up her story in like four sentences uh, Pete was my best friend. He turned bad. He ended up dying. I felt bad. Mm -hmm. And I get that. I know about enough about Spider-Man that I don't really need any more than that to go, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. But now they redo that bit for like the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. So I'm already getting this vibe of, oh, I've already heard this story before, mm -hmm. so I'm kind of bored with it because I already know where it's going and how it's going to happen. Then after like 10 to 15 minutes of Gwen, then we get the opening credits 
which is like, holy crap, this far in that, okay, mm-hmm. fine. And we get to Miles World, and that's familiar from the last visit, like art style wise. And it now feels like the movie is just starting because I'm finally on familiar ground. But now that I'm on familiar ground, we have to go through Miles's teenage angst and drama to get caught up with his thing. Mm-hmm. So like the first half hour to 45 minutes of the movie just feels like a rehash and catching up with characters and setting up the emotional weight of everything. But it's not fun. Mm-hmm. In, in the first Spider-Verse, the movie was light, brisk, fun, took me by surprise, took mm-hmm. me on a wild ride. I was laughing. I was crying. I was just having a wee old good time. Mm-hmm. And this movie, I had very high expectations. And when Drew used the word melancholy to describe it, it left me a little bit worried. Mm-hmm. And the movie seems to have all of the teenaged angst and just very little of the fun. And there are a plethora of fun moments, but they're interspersed with lots of emotional baggage, mm-hmm. which you know normally is a good thing for your storytelling purposes. But mm-hmm. in this moment, I'm waiting for for things to happen like continuously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spot finally shows up in the movie, and Jason Schwartzman does a great job with him. Mm-hmm. But he's in the movie just a little bit, and you know he's going to be more to deal with in the next film, but. You know, it's like I was left wanting more for that. Mm-hmm. And then we get to the, some of the stylized choices. Okay, so here's the thing. It's the same as the first movie in Miles' world. Like, when you look at the cityscape of, mm-hmm. of New York City, the buildings in the background, you know how there'd be a color misprint in the comics where, like, inside the line of the building would be blue, but just behind it, it would be the magenta color, and it was outside of the lines a little bit, and it gave it that messed up kind of look? Mm-hmm. Well, they they keep doing that, and I didn't care for it in the first movie, but when I'm watching this movie, and there's some beautiful skylines, and I keep going, do I need to go get my glasses? Because everything seems out of focus, because you've got two images that are not perfectly lined up with one another, and I get it's a stylistic choice, but I don't like it, Mm -hmm. because there's so much pretty in there that I want to really look at, and I can't, because blurry image to two layers of different colors so i really really struggle with some of the stylistic choices like there's a a scene with the vulture who is hand drawn in like pencil or or charcoal and he's in a vibrant colorful world and because he's a sketch he look he's he's kind of hard to see sometimes like the details i would love to just freeze frame and look at the the beauty of the art that the artist put into it but things happen so quickly and the art is so wildly different from the environment that it is surrounding it, it just is kind of hard to have your eyes take it in as a whole. And so in the very first Spider-Verse, it was all contained within Miles's world. So when you have Spider-Ham show up, you know, it's a cartoon, and, and that kind of looks okay. And then you get Spider-Man Noir, and that's just another cartoon. That looks fine. And you get the, the Asian girl... Mm-hmm. And her art style is anime, and that looks fine because it's all, like, in Miles's world. But here, we're jumping from Gwen's world, which is, you know, like a watercolor pastel kind of thing. And then we get to Miles' world, and then we get to, uh, like, the Indian Spider-Man. And, and it's very distinct, unique art styles. But when you then take a character like Spider-Punk, who is a great freaking character, but it looks like he was torn out of a newspaper article. And it's kind of like he was just torn out of a magazine and stuck on top of a movie. Hmm. And he would just kind of pop into different images, like radical changes just for the sake of being punk rock. But he's such a damn cool looking character. I just wish he would stop for a minute so I could appreciate 
him for a moment. He just kept changing and, and it was blocky and weird. But like the you've got this entire world that's trying to be a, a cohesive. This is our art style for this world. And then you take like 10, 12, 20 different characters with their own unique style and you put them all on the screen at the same time mm-hmm. and you lose the beauty and you start to get the chaos and the mess. So, yeah, I really, really struggled with a lot of that, and I just wanted something that was just a little bit cleaner because Spider-Punk, seriously, looked like a dream board from the Ramones. Hmm. It just it was, kept changing. Um, I've always been a big fan of Spider-Man 2099. I was so happy to have Miguel take a larger role in the movie. That was fine. Uh, I also love Ben Riley's Scarlet Spider as a character, and I'm just a little bit miffed that they, they crapped all over him and made him a punching bag for all of the jokes. But... Hmm. I guess if you have to poke fun at anyone in the Spider-Man movie, it might as well be Ben Riley, the mm-hmm. clone, because you know a lot of people did not like him in the comic book days. They they were like all pissed. How dare you be a clone of our our favorite <laughs> Peter? Mm-hmm. So I, yeah, I can understand why they did it. It's just they made him so freaking stupid. I was like, come on, guys, that's that's my boy. Mm-hmm. You made him so dumb. Oh, so dumb. <laughs> And then uh, finally, the the use of live action just made me cringe at Sony's desperate need to tie the Venom stuff into the other spider peoples and all that. And like we did get a a shot of Andrew Garfield and a shot of Toby Mm -hmm. as they were talking about things that happened in other spider verses. But they didn't show up like in a cartoon form or they didn't show up like, you know, Toby didn't come walking in a live action version into a cartoon set. Nothing that crazy happened. Mm -hmm. So I think that was done as well as it could have been done. But it's just the whole need of, oh, and we tied that to Venom. And and I didn't see Tom Holland, so I don't think they finally were able to tie that boat just yet. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I know they still want to. And then uh, the the one other thing that they talk about in this movie is um, canon events. Mm-hmm. And that was a thing I had to debate with my wife about as well was like, does that as a concept, does that work for you? Does that MacGuffin actually, you know, have a heartbeat or is it dead on, on <laughs> delivery? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, I think it should work because you're right. If you watch the movie during the, the story of, of what they're trying to get across to young miles mm-hmm. is that in order to be a Spider-Man, you have to have a certain thing happen to you. And it's usually uncle Ben dying, mm-hmm. or it's the, the chief of police who's the father of your best friend gets mm-hmm. killed and you're partially responsible for it. You know, these things happen over and over, no matter how many times they relaunch a comic or they have a different character inhabit the spider persona that similar story arc always happens to them. So in this universe, they call it a canon event, Mm. quote unquote, that needs to happen. And if it doesn't, uh, that spider person, you know, shouldn't exist and their world starts to unravel and that whole reality disappears. Mm -hmm. So now, yeah, so Miles has got a tough choice to make. You know, does he try and go back and save his his dad Mm. and uh, risk all of reality, his reality? Uh, but now, you know, as we see at the end of the movie, he's going to have the help of some some spider friends. So we'll see what happens in episode three. But I think if it just would have been lighter in tone, had more laughs, it just seems so heavy and so earnest and in, in doing something really big. And it's like all the art's beautiful. I, I mean, there's so much great in it. Mm-hmm. I don't anyone want to think it's a bad movie. It's just I don't think I was in the mood for a Spider-Man that wasn't bright and fun and just quippy, quippy, quippy. 
Okay. It just seemed just too heavy for me at that moment. I can't help but notice the original film from 2018 comes in at one hour and 56 minutes, whereas this one comes in at two hours and 20 minutes. So that's an additional 24 minutes of runtime. Yeah. You, you make it sound like you feel that, that extra time. My bladder didn't. It's not like, you know, sometimes at the end of a long movie, I, you know, and I'm waiting for end credits and I'm like, just hurry up so I can see the end credits so I can go to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. You know, that's usually my motivating factor. Mm-hmm. This one, I, you know, I sat there and, and the movie played and it got to its end and I knew that it was going to end with a, a cliffhanger of sorts. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't expecting any sort of real resolution. It was just, where are they going to stop the play? Hmm. And uh, once they did and the credits rolled, it's like, all right, let's go. And honestly, the one thing that surprised me, I went to go see it at the uh, IMAX downtown Indianapolis, which is the largest IMAX theater in the state. Oh, okay. Uh, Yes, apparently six stories tall that screen Mm -hmm. is. But anyway, they played a little clip right before the movie that said, this film has no mid-credits or end-credits scene. Thank you. <laughs> that was like, wow, that is awesome. We can leave as soon as the credits start to roll and we don't have to sit here for an extra 10 minutes. That tells you quite a bit about how the folks in exhibition feel about, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, they love people going to the Marvel movies, but they'd love to also turn those theaters quicker than they can. So, all right. Well, no, 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 no. Thanks for, for your thoughts. Yeah, I'm hoping part three I'll lighten up if if I, you know, it's like if I get Return of the Jedi after Empire Strikes Back, it's like, okay, the Empire is gone. Thank mm-hmm. you. I can I can sleep again. So, mm-hmm. it, yeah, it just all depends on a, a couple of years from now. I, I may lighten up and go, yes, this is a wonderful trilogy. But right now, this one piece is leaving me wanting at the moment. Well, again, thank you. Um, all right. Now to shift to our other topic. This is legitimately a fun bend on the whole history of, of Marvel Studios. So, Aaron, are, are you familiar with the name David Maisel? Is that the f- fabulous M- Mr. Maisel? No. I actually just checked on, on the, no, the, the husband in the marvelous Miss Maisel is Joel. Okay, you know, to, right. So, no. David Maisel was Marvel Studios' former president and the initial architect of the MCU. Now, mind you, we, we all know who Kevin Feige is, but... To read this article, the MCU would not exist without David Maisel. Maisel flat out said, most people right now think that Kevin started the studio. They don't know me at all. And Marvel's former chief counsel, John Turzen, told The New Yorker, said, look, David's sort of been written out of the history of the studio, which I really think is weird. It, It was his brainchild. Let's talk about the story that David shared about going to Marvel's board of directors and telling them that John Favreau wants Robert Downey Jr. to play Iron Man. And only somebody who's outside the company who has nothing, you know, no ties to this could say this. But David Flatout says, my board thought I was crazy to put the future of the company in the hands of an addict. I helped them understand how great he was for the role. We all had confidence that he was clean and would stay clean. He tells the story of the formation of Marvel Studios. And, and as David remembers, it was summer of 2003. He was an agent at Endeavor who longed to run a studio. And what he says is, that's when I thought, hey, if I can get a movie I can believe in, and every movie that comes after that is, is a sequel or quasi-sequel, the, the same characters show up, then it could go on forever. And 
because it's not 30 new movies. It's it's one movie and, and 29 sequels, what we call a universe. And so with this idea in mind, Maisel flies to Florida, meets with Ike Perlmutter, the, the then CEO of Marvel Entertainment, who liked the idea enough to make Maisel the president of Marvel Studios. He then goes off and raises $525 million uh, through Merrill Lynch, and things start off in 2008 with the original Iron Man. Care to guess how they settled on how the first film should be Iron Man? I would imagine they uh, populated a dartboard with pictures of comic books and, and threw darts at it, and or that or rock, paper, scissors, I don't know. The real story is, is in that very same realm. They used a focus group of children and literally asked them, you know, which of the Marvel toys there on the table they most wanted to play with. And the kids all zeroed in on Iron Man. So I bring this up because in October of this year, a very interesting book is coming to market. It's entitled MCU, The Reign of Marvel Studios. Uh, this is coming from Live Right Publishing and will hit store shelves on uh, October 10th of this year. And it's the unauthorized behind-the-scenes story of the and what I love about this is you can only write a description of Marvel like this after Quantum Mania. But it says the stunning rise and the suddenly uncertain reign of the most transformative cultural phenomena of our time, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's uh, writers Joanna Robinson, David Golas, and Gavin Edwards have done more than 100 interviews with actors, producers, directors, and writers to pull together the definitive chronicle of Marvel Studios. And this drops on October 10th. On October 24th, we get Marvel's, the official Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline. This book is, is promoted as being created in collaboration with Marvel Studios. It will answer the biggest questions. What happened, where, and when? Anthony Brisnation is the author along with, with Amy Ratcliffe. But inside of just one two-week period, we get, we're going to get an unofficial, unauthorized look behind the scenes of the history of the, the MCU. But then we're going to get the official timeline. So we'll at least know when all of these stories supposedly happened. Also, Aaron, I, anyone who's listened to this podcast knows that I've collected the art of books for all of the MCU films, the, the, the ones that have made it to market, mind you. A, a lot of them lately have been slow getting here due to, well, issues related to the pandemic, which could then cause production problems in China. But holy cow, that logjam seems to have finally broken and Aaron was just talking about Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. The art of book for that is coming out from Abrams on July 3rd. So basically, uh, you got four weeks from now. August 1st, uh, we're finally going to get the uh, Spider-Man No Way Home art of book. This next set of books, by the way, there's eight of them. Eight of them coming to market, folks, all in five months. We get The Art of the Eternals, that comes out on August 15th. We get Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, that art of book comes out September 5th. Then on September 12th, just one week later, we get Thor, Love and Thunder, the art of book. And then Werewolf by Night, that gets its own art of book on October 24th. And then finally, 
On the 14th of November, we get Hawkeye, the art of the series, and finally Moon Knight, the art of the series. So inside of just October 24th through November 21st, we get uh, three different books about both specials and limited series for Marvel Studios. If you're going to try to keep up with this, it's going to be dear, folks. These things start at $60. Uh, you can usually pick them up for less than that. But yeah, 60 bucks a pop for these things. I just want to know, is the werewolf by night only in black and white? <laughs> That's an interesting question. I will have to do some digging. Now, speaking of other expensive things, earlier this week at Apple's WWDC conference, they debuted their Apple Vision Pro headset. And one of the ways they demoed it and showed the potential for this genuinely pricey device, right? You know, it's coming to the market at $3,500 a pop. But they have a VR artificial reality experience based on the Disney Plus show, What If? And the idea is you can put on this headset and reality as you know it fractures in front of you and suddenly the watcher's there the trailer for this particular aspect of the apple vision pro headset literally you know type in disney what if and either the apple wwc conference or the apple vision pro thing but you can see how they're going to do this. And it shows that Disney and Apple are, are very much together in this space. And I won't lie to you, it's not a Tony Stark heads-up display, you know, sort of thing that we know from the films, but it's really cool looking. It's a nice advanced tech demo to get people interested in hardware. Mm -hmm. They just want to go, who would who would spend $3,500 on this headset right now? Mm -hmm. Really, not too many people because it doesn't have anything to do mm -hmm. at the moment. So it's like, all right, well, we need something kind of geeky. How do we fire up the nerds? Well, we could make it seem like it's an Iron Man thing with a heads-up display. And they're like, brilliant, let's do that. And then... Now you have a, a little subculture of geeks. And remember, geeks, if they find something and they love it, they can be so loud with their evangelizing about, oh, you got to check this out. It's so cool. So, I mean, you always you always try and find a nerd when you've got new technology. And I think they're just trying to reach out to the comic book nerds and go, hey, guys, this is something that you might like. You want to try it? And it's just a matter of does a comic book nerd have three and a half grand to throw on a flashy tech demo i totally agree with what you're going to say but but just <laughs> allow me one little grace note here yes uh, what was it a, a year and a half ago the disney company lifted the curtain on the galactic star cruiser where you know it's just sort of like you know, oh, you know, you're going to love this. You know, the, the, it's lots of tech and you get to be part of the Star Wars. You know, and, it's just, and the only it's only five thousand dollars. Yeah, but that was also just for two days mm. where this is a piece of hardware that you get to keep as long as Apple keeps supporting it, which is about five years. OK. And then uh, it'll be a, a paperweight. I think if I remember correctly, the iPhone when it came out originally mm -hmm. was like $500 like it was a 499 to buy it and mm -hmm. that was back when cell phones were still free when with your carrier plan 
And so everyone's like, nobody's going to spend $500 on an iPhone. That's insane. Mm -hmm. And it became the number one selling phone. Now, this headset is absolutely not going to be the new iPhone. Just will not be. However, there will be uh, enough people that will buy it out of curiosity. The hard part is, like, they're they're really trying to make it seem like you can use this at work. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, you could just type on your keyboard, and they've got this cool thing where if you've got a Bluetooth keyboard, it, it'll actually show, like, the, the keyboard under your fingertips, and you can actually use a physical keyboard. Really neat. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have, like, if you go to work and you use, like, Microsoft Excel for 90% of your data entry, and they don't have Microsoft Excel on their Apple headset, mm-hmm. well, you can't use it for work now, can you? Mm-hmm. Right? And so if you don't have the apps to do the cool things then nobody has a reason for it. You know, Google had this problem. I know a guy that that bought the Google Glasses. You remember those that had a little thing? And uh, he thought that tech-wise, they were so neat, so cool. Mm -hmm. But he he got them, and guess what? Nobody built anything to do with those glasses. So they were just fancy glasses that were overpriced and didn't really do anything. So Apple's got all the hardware in place, but it's going to take some software developers to jump on board and go, this is the most amazing thing ever. We need to rally around this and, and create apps specifically for this because... With the Oculus, you don't have the see-through, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, they do. It's black and white, but it's different. And Apple's really focused on augmented reality, not virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Sure, you can do virtual reality with augmented reality, but it's harder to do uh, if you're a, a VR headset like an Oculus Quest or something like that. It's almost impossible now to do augmented reality because you don't, you've just got black and white cameras for the outside world, and so you're not in your space, mm-hmm. really. And so, I mean, Apple's, they, they made, I think, all of the right decisions in the hardware design. It's just up to software folks to create something to do with it and then for people to be interested enough in the combination of that peanut butter and jelly to go spend three and a half grand to dive into the pool. That's a good take on this. Yeah, it's a tough situation for a new product like that. I mean, mm-hmm. fortunately, VR has been out for a minute now, so they can just load up the Star Wars Darth Vader experience, mm-hmm. which is like three chapters, and you buy them for like 20 bucks a piece. You know, I, I bought those as soon as I got my Oculus Quest, played them the first day, and then, you know, once I was done with them, I was done with them. Mm-hmm. But, man, it was so cool to have Darth Vader walk up on you and be a full foot taller than you. Scares the crap out of you. So, I mean, it would be really neat to play it on a, a sharper, cleaner version with better resolution and better head tracking and better, 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 better and all that. So um, I'll be looking forward to giving it a test run when I get my chance to. Cool. And uh, I'd love to have you report back at that point. Mm-hmm. So... And speaking of things that I look forward to from Aaron, I have so enjoyed the shows you've done today on on 32nd Street about, you know, where you shine the spotlight on Madison Avenue and how they get us to buy what we buy. What's up next for 32nd Street? Well, we have an old colleague of mine, uh, Craig Allen, who is currently a creative services director for a group of Cumulus stations in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And uh, I invited him on the show to call me out on all my shit. Mm-hmm. What, what did I get wrong, Craig? Tell mm-hmm. me. Because cause he'll tell me straight if I mess something up. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, we just I wanted a, another viewpoint that wasn't mine in the world of advertising and, the, and tricks that he uses and, and subterfuge about how, how do you do your day-to-day to get people to buy stuff they don't need with money they don't have to impress people they don't like. Mm-hmm. And uh, he also had some really nifty ideas uh, that uh, we, we've got one called Tricking Broca's 
area, which is a part of your brain, apparently. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ron corrected me. He's like, I don't think that's how that works. That part of the brain is for a different use. It's for speech, uh, not for what you're talking about. He's like, but the concept still holds true. It's just for a different area of the brain. So we don't know what area of the brain it is we're talking about, but we know the concept is real. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Well. Right church, wrong pew. Okay. Exactly, exactly. There we go. All right. Uh, And uh, in addition to the 32nd Street podcast, uh, that you're also out among the Twitters or or social media, where where are you? Yep, still sticking around with Twitter, at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Super easy to find me there. Okay, okay. And and likewise, same thing. I'm still on Twitter. Likewise, uh, over on Instagram uh, as Jim Hill Media, and on Facebook as Jim Hill Media News. I want to remind you that we have some other shows on the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network that you might want to check out. We, of course, have Disney Dish that I do with Lynn Testa. Uh, likewise, we have Fine Tuning that I do with Drew Taylor, who has his own wonderful podcast, uh, Light the Fuse, uh, that he does with Charles Hood about the Mission Impossible films. Brian Gaughan and I will be working up a new Looking at Lucasfilm over the next couple of days. Want to work in a further plug here for the Dayton Disney Anna thing that I'll be doing at the uh, Hope Hotel and Richard Holbrook because I'll be doing a presentation there that touches on uh, the early days of uh, when Disney and George Lucas sat down and were trying to decide what to do in the theme parks. And a lot of people know about Star Tours, but not as many know about the Lucasport and the uh, well, you would have loved this era, and it was a a, a a a roller coaster where, you know, six passengers at a time would be dispatched, and you had a button in front of you, and you could literally decide uh, on the uh, as you were going up the lo- you know the load hill, did you want to go to you know to the dark side or did you want to celebrate the force, and depending on. What the majority of people on the coaster did, what they voted for, is the track you were then dispatched to, uh, which then had show scenes with, you know, if you chose the dark side, you know, you're, you know, suddenly there's Darth Vader swinging a lightsaber at you and the the emperor is shooting lightning bolts at you. And I want to say Boba Fett flew over you. But again, uh, if you like the Star Wars stuff, the Lucasfilm stuff, I'll be talking about that at Dayton Isniana. Beyond that... Folks, if you could do Aaron and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple uh, podcast page, we'd love to have you rate and recommend, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Marvelous Disney, but if you also could put in a nice word for 32nd Street, that would be helpful. I I guess that's going to do it for tonight, folks. Uh, So thank you so much for listening. And on behalf of, of Mr. Adams and I, we will be back soon.